Considered Laurel Hill Stories. This is podcast number four for August 2019. Holidays Among the Stones. Stephen F. Whitman, Sarah Josepha Hale, Martha Kimball, and Anna Jarvis. Laurel Hill Cemetery is a national historic landmark, an arboretum, a sculpture garden, a nature preserve, and an active cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for thousands of people every year. Its sister cemetery, West Laurel Hill Cemetery, located across the Schuylkill River in Ballakinwood, was founded in 1869 and has a history and population of its own. Join me for the next 40 minutes or so and find out about four of our permanent residents, four people who made American holidays what they are today. Stephen F. Whitman, the man who invented Whitman chocolates, Sarah Josepha Hale, the woman who invented Thanksgiving, Martha Tillman, the woman who may have invented Memorial Day, and Anna Jarvis, the mother of Mother's Day. I'm Joe Lex, your host for All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories. When you're stuck for a last-minute holiday gift, and even the Internet is too slow, what do you do? There may not be a florist nearby, many department stores are closed on holidays, and a bottle of wine is not always the appropriate offering. For more than a 100 years, people have been finding a box of candy to be just the right presentation. Many pharmacies open long hours, weekends, and holidays, keep a collection on hand just for these face-saving occasions. At the top of the most wanted list is the iconic Whitman's Sampler, with its familiar cross-stitch pattern and cellophane wrap. Where did this genius of an idea come from? In 1842, a 19-year-old entrepreneur named Stephen French Whitman opened a small retail confectionery and fruiterer's shop at 3rd and Market Streets in Philadelphia. He hoped to compete with the finer French candy makers of the time. Being located near the docks on the Delaware River, he invited returning sailors to bring to his shop the various nuts and fruits that they had gathered in their travels. He would cover them in chocolate, creating a tasty and unique gift they could bring home to their loved ones. By making his confections in the United States, they would be much fresher than those brought back from Europe. His business was a huge success. Whitman was an astute businessman. In 1854, he produced choice mixed sugar plums from Stephen F. Whitman, the first packaged confection in a printed marked box. In other words, the first trademarked package. In 1860, he took a chance and he bought a newspaper advertisement, which was a novelty at the time. It appeared on December 29th, three months prior to the beginning of the Civil War. His business continued to grow. 
1866, Whitman needed more space for his candy-making operation. He moved to 12th and Market Street. The company began to wholesale its confections to other merchants in Philadelphia and the surrounding areas. These products were primarily bulk items retailed under dealers' store names. In 1869, Stephen's 21-year-old son, Horace Franklin Whitman, joined his father in the candy-making business. 1876 was the year of the Philadelphia Centennial Exposition, and tens of thousands of people flocked to Fairmount Park. Whitman's was awarded a bronze medal for product excellence. The next year, Whitman's instantaneous chocolate, the first of many famous tin-boxed chocolates, was introduced to the public. And in 1878, he received international recognition with an award at the Paris International Exposition for Product Excellence. But in 1880, the building at 12th and Market was destroyed by fire. The next stop was in the 600 block of Cherry Street. Stephen Whitman died in 1888. He was succeeded as president by Horace. The company continued to thrive. In 1904, Whitman's placed their first magazine ad, beginning a commitment to advertising that continues to this day. In 1906, Whitman's moved again, this time to Fourth and Race. The next year, under the direction of sales manager Walter P. Sharp, Whitman's established its own national sales organization for direct distribution to dealers on a national level. The company targeted better drugstores and placed products with only one druggist in each town. In 1909, Whitman's continued its commitment to advertising by placing its first ad in the Saturday Evening Post, a magazine published in Philadelphia by the Curtis Publishing Company, whose founder, Cyrus H.K. Curtis, is buried at West Laurel Hill Cemetery in the Plymouth section, Plot 78. When Horace Franklin Whitman died in 1911, Walter P. Sharp took over and began to develop the fussy package for fastidious folks. Whitman's advertised a money-back guarantee, a belief which was not supported by many other manufacturers of that era. The next year, 1912, Whitman's sampler was introduced to the public. It included a collection of the most popular pieces of candy sold in the confectionery shop. Whitman's became the first in its industry to use cellophane to wrap its packaged products. Cellophane was imported from France until 1924, when DuPont started the United States production. For many years, Whitman's was the largest single user of cellophane in the United States. When Stephen French Whitman died in 1888, he was buried in Section 2, Plot 4 of the South Section of Laurel Hill Cemetery, soon to be joined by his wife Lydia, who only outlived him by two years. When Horace died in 1911, he was interred at West Laurel Hill Cemetery, River Section, Plot 59. His wife Ida joined him the next year. But here is my favorite Whitman story. It has nothing to do with holidays. Between 1942 and 1945, the company sent six million pounds of chocolate to overseas servicemen in land, sea, and air tins. Women on Whitman's production lines slipped notes into the candy boxes to comfort the fighting men. The men loved them. Many of these letters resulted in long-term friendships and even some post-war marriages. 
And when the men came home, they recognized the sampler boxes and they bought them by the thousands. The company's slogan, a woman never forgets a man who remembers, became iconic. Now owned by Russell Stover, the estimate is that more than a billion boxes of the Whitman sampler have been sold since 1912. I'm talking to Patty Stringer. We're at the gatehouse of um, Laurel Hill Cemetery on a fine Sunday morning. Patty has been a guide here at Laurel Hill for how many years? Five years. Five years. Um, Patty has some special areas that she covers, and uh, since we are talking about holidays today, I'm going to ask Patty about Sarah Josepha Hale. First of all, am I pronouncing Josepha correctly? Honestly, I don't know how it's pronounced. I commonly pronounce it Josepha simply because I like the sound, mm -hmm. but most people pronounce it Josepha, so I've uh, taken to okay. doing it that so way. So either way. And, either and way. we don't have any recordings of people contemporaneous no. to tell us how she pronounced it. No. Uh, it's probably Josepha, but honestly, I don't know. Okay. Tell <laughs> us why Sarah Josepha Hale should be discussed in a program about holidays. Well, most people believe, because they're taught, that Thanksgiving was an unbroken tradition from the 17th century till today, but that's not quite the case. Sarah Josepha Hale grew up in, in New Hampshire. Now, New England did have the unbroken tradition from the 17th century, but until 1862, the only nationally recognized holidays were Washington's birthday and the 4th of July. Thanksgiving was unknown outside of New England. Sarah was a remarkable woman who really should be known as well as Betsy Ross. And she petitioned five presidents because she was the editress, her term, editress, of the most popular magazine in America. She petitioned five presidents to make Thanksgiving a national holiday. The first four simply ignored her. But the fifth, who simply had a civil war to ruin, <laughs> a gentleman you may have heard of by the name of Abraham Lincoln, he thought it was a terrific idea, and in 1863, Thanksgiving became an official national holiday. Okay, now, you say she petitioned for presidents. Was this through letters, through editorials? Uh, tell tell oh. me about how the, you know the magazine itself. Oh, she was the editress of Godey's Ladies' Book, which I said was the most popular magazine in 19th century America. Ladies' Book is kind of a misnomer because she had things like uh, sheet music, house plans. I mean, literally, you could get a plan to build a church out of Godey's Ladies' Book. It's absolutely true. We've got a volume of it right over here. She and her editorials, I mean, like all editors everywhere, she had her own column in every issue, and she advocated for the uh, Thanksgiving holiday for over 40 years. And yes, she wrote lots of letters to presidents and to governors and any politician she could find saying that Thanksgiving was a terrific idea and we should be grateful as Americans and as well-meaning people. Forty years is pretty astonishing. She edited the magazine for more than 40 years. Yes, she did. And, she, and Godey was the owner all this time. Godey was the owner all this time. Uh, they had an interesting relationship because Godey's magazine was best known for its uh, fashion plates hand-colored fashion place of the okay. latest designs from Paris. That's what sold the magazine, but frankly, Sarah hated them. Okay. She expressed the opinion in some of her letters that American women should dress modestly and without foreign influence. Oh, my. So, yes, 
She tolerated them, but she really didn't like them at all. Well, what did she wear herself then? She she was widowed at a very early age. Okay. And she wore black for the rest of her life. Okay, black dresses. Black dresses, yes. Okay, but they were all American designs. They were all American designs. You know, she she did not care for uh, any foreign frills, any lace, just plain <laughs> so, black. No, no, she, there was some lace. Uh, okay. One of the odd things about her is before she got to be an editress, she very briefly had a millinery business. I've only ever seen one picture of her wearing an actual hat, which is a kind of a Quaker bonnet. Okay. Sometimes some lace in her hair, but uh, really no head coverings. Okay, so she was Quaker. She was not Quaker, no. She was was not a Quaker. No, she was not a Quaker. She was Episcopalian. Oh, okay. Where did Godey find her? Where do, where do you find somebody and hire them for more okay. than 40 let me, years? Let me start this at the very beginning. Oh, all right. Now, she grew up in New Hampshire, as I said, okay. which is important. And her parents were kind of prehistoric hippies. They had this funny idea that their only daughter should have the same kind of educational opportunities as their four sons. So whenever her big brother Horatio would come home from Dartmouth, he was assigned to teach her everything that he learned at Dartmouth. And she was a very good student. Now, remember, this is the 19th century. She was taught at home. She'd never went to a formal school in what, her life. What decade are we talking here? We're talking about 1780. She was born about 1780. They found out that she, was, she had a natural ability to write. When she was 25, she married a, a lawyer by the name of David Hale. Now, he encouraged her to keep educating herself. They, they learned French together. And he, he encouraged her to write for newspapers, write little essays and poetry and so forth. Now, here's the problem. In the 19th century, it was considered indecent for a woman to write for money under her own name, which is why we have George Eliot and George Sand and all those women writers sure. who used male names. Sure. So everything that she contributed to the local papers was anonymous, and she was never paid for it. She married David Hale, and nine years into their marriage, he died suddenly of pneumonia, mm. which is bad enough. But she also had five children in the interim. Mm. So here she is. She's a young widow. She's 36. She has five children to support and no way of doing it. Some of her husband's friends, who knew that she had been writing anonymously, got enough money together to have a book of her poetry published, Vanity Press. So much to everybody's surprise, it sold very well. Very well would have meant... How many copies? Any idea? Oh, well, we're talking about the 1830s. There are about... Hundreds, thousands. Hundreds, maybe thousands. Anyway, it made a lot of money. It sold a lot better than anyone expected. So she embarked on another book. This was called Northwood, and it's a novel about uh, abolition. And it was was published in 1827. That's that's 25 years before Uncle Tom's Cabin. And this sold so well that it attracted the the attention of clergymen in Boston. I should also mention something extraordinary about Northwood. Because she worked very hard on it, she took three years to write, she insisted that her name be on the the, uh, title page. She insisted it's not going to be a lady of New Hampshire. It's going to be Sarah Josepha Buell Hale. It sold very well. And as I said, uh, an Episcopal minister, Episcopal priest by the name of John Blake, read it and was very impressed. He was putting together a magazine for women, but he wanted a woman to be its editor. Well, guess who got the job? So she moved from New Hampshire to Boston with her youngest child, in, uh, with her youngest uh, son, William. 
The other four children she left in, uh, left in New Hampshire with relatives. What was called the Ladies' Magazine, later became the Ameri- American Ladies' Magazine, went on until 1836, where she got a, the attention of uh, Louis Godey in Philadelphia. As an aside, yes. do you know what the literacy rate among women was in the United States at this time? Not very high. Not very high. I, okay. I don't honestly know, but... Uh, People were buying... Definitely less than 50%. Definitely less than 50%. Okay. But women who were literate were buying this magazine, and she... Okay. I mean, did this have anything to do with the number of pictures? The the, the journal that she did in Boston, was it highly pictorial, like Godey's? No, not at all. Not at all. Okay. Not at all. It was uh, mostly just print, and she wrote fully half of the articles, at least. Wow. This was a monthly? It's a monthly, yes. Holy cow. And uh, she wrote fully half of the articles herself, and she encouraged women who were literate, women poets and so forth, to contribute. In 1836, the magazine attracted the attention of Louis Godey, who was running his own magazine here in Philadelphia. He asked her to leave Boston, come to Philadelphia, and be his editress. She said no. Then the following year, there was an economic downturn. The Panic of 1837. Yeah, that's, that's what happened with the cemetery also. Right, exactly. Cemetery founded in 1836, next year, crash. Right, okay. okay. 1837. Godey asks her again to come to Philadelphia because he has bought his, her magazine out. He, he has purchased it. He has bought it out from under her. And she, he says, come to Philadelphia and edit my magazine. It gets better. She says, yes, Mr. Godey, I will edit your magazine, but I'm going to do it from here in Boston until my youngest is out of school. Now, keep this in mind. It's 1837. Yeah. What does edit from Boston mean? It means mail, stamps, and envelopes. And she did it. She edited the entire magazine from Boston from 1837 to 1841 when she moved here and took a house that's still standing at 9th and Spruce. So each issue is more than 100, probably closer to 200. In tiny type. And on smaller pages than I anticipated. Okay, so so she's editing by mail for four years. And she eventually comes to Philadelphia in 1841, uh, continues to edit the magazine, and along the way, she, she edits the magazine, of course, and the readership just explodes. She's doing things like, um, she's encouraging female writers, and she also uh, advocates things like education for women, especially medical education. She, you know, this should be obvious, but it's a, it apparently wasn't at the time, that women and children especially are frightened by male doctors, but they will talk to a woman, any woman, mm. easily, so she advocated for women's medical education. She helped uh, found Vassar College. She encouraged uh, Christmas trees in America. It was mostly a German custom and, and British custom. She sent a reporter to cover the wedding of uh, Queen Victoria. And of course, she ignited the entire wedding industry by saying, white wedding gowns are a great idea because they're good enough for Queen Victoria. She advocated very strongly for Thanksgiving. In fact, there's an entire chapter in that first novel, Northwood, that describes a typical New England dinner, Thanksgiving dinner, and it's very much like what we'd expect in America today. There's an enormous description of the turkey and the pumpkin pie and so forth, and a lot of what we consider to be 
traditional Thanksgiving fair goes all the way back to Sarah Josepha Hill. But one of the, the very interesting things about her that you would think that she'd be a feminist icon. Well, in many ways she was, and in many ways she was not. Because one of the things that she was absolutely against was women's suffrage. She was up her time and ahead of it at the same time. See, she believed that women were morally superior and that politics was a dirty business so that one would cancel out the other. So she, she was not at all in favor of women getting the right to vote or, or, that, uh, or getting into politics. And she was a poet. Yeah, she was a poet. She wrote a poem that uh, at every tour that I do, when I include her, and I usually do, I say, everybody here, you know, even the tiny little children, you know this one. And it's Mary Had a Little Lamb. The year that she retired, believe it or not, uh, 1877, Thomas Edison made the first sound recording. And guess what he recorded in honor of her retirement? And Sarah has a very simple headstone. Yes. And Louis Gody has a gaudy mausoleum. The gaudy gaudy. The gaudy gaudy mausoleum. Well, I asked one of my favorite fellow guides, Russ Dodge, about that because Mm -hmm. I was puzzled by it too. And he just looked at me very evenly and said, well, you know she was from New England. And she lived her last... How long in Philadelphia? How long did she live after the... uh... She lived two years after her retirement. She died at uh, age 90, which was extraordinary for the time. An extraordinary career, too. I mean, she really does sound like one of the the movers and shakers of the 19th century. The other other, uh, extraordinary thing about Sarah, considering the time, is she had five children, and they all survived to adulthood. Curious, what influence did she have? For instance, somebody else who's buried here, Louisa Knapp Curtis. Do you know whether there was any connection between Sarah Josepha Hale and Louisa Curtis? Well, no, there wasn't, but I think it. one of the reasons for the Ladies' Home Journal was to compete with Godey's, but by that, okay. but by the time that Louisa Curtis even came onto the scene, Sarah had retired. So I don't think so, Louisa ever really wanted to go head-to-head with Sarah. That would be a bit much. Okay, as far as you know, then, she was unique. She also uh, coined the term lingerie. She coined the term yes, lingerie? Yes, she invented the word. It's not a French term. It's not a French. I think she got it from the French, but uh, the first time it was used in this context, meaning women's underwear. Mm-hmm. In, in my little reading about her, I read an article at American Heritage about her several years ago. It mentioned that Godey's circulation of 150000 a month doesn't sound like that much. until you realize how the magazine was handed around. And it was not uncommon for five or six women to share a a subscription or a subscription for a boarding house, a woman's boarding house, where 20 women living in the boarding house might share reading it. So it it had a major, major impact. And remember, we didn't have 50 states at the time either. So that that circulation number is extraordinary for its time. Well, Patty, I thank you very much for telling us about Sarah Josepha, or Josepha (laughs) Hale. And um, when is your next tour at Laurel? My next tour is not until September. We're going to, uh, my husband and I are going to be doing a, a Hot Spots and Storied Pots okay. in late September. The Greatest Hits. The Greatest Hits Tour, because yeah. everybody wants to see General Meade and Harry Callis and Millionaire's Row. And we're going to have all that and more, and possibly, probably, Sarah as well. Got to do Sarah. I really do think she is 
one of the great women of the 19th century, the little that I know about. I think she's one of the great women of, uh, of the United States. And, and as I said, I never heard of her until I came to do this. And honestly, I think because she's so local, she ought to be as well known as Betsy Ross. Every year toward the end of May, you can read articles in the newspapers and online about the origins of Memorial Day, now observed on the last Monday of the month. And every year, you might find yourself more confused about where it started. Was it slaves in the South honoring their liberators? Was it in Warrington, Virginia, Savannah, Georgia, Columbia, South Carolina? Or was it in the North at Gettysburg or Bullsburg, Pennsylvania or Waterloo, New York? There's even a Center for Memorial Day Research at Columbus State University in Georgia. And I have a book in front of me that's called The Genesis of the Memorial Day Holiday in America by Daniel Belware and Richard Gardner. Now, when I was growing up in the 1950s in suburban Chicago, Decoration Day was the 30th of May. It was a day of baseball doubleheaders and the Indianapolis 500, which my father and I religiously listened to on the portable radio while we were doing outside chores. And then maybe some backyard grilling of hamburgers and hot dogs. Although my father and both of his brothers, my mother's younger brother, both of my grandfathers and a great-great-grandfather all served honorably in the military during wartime, it never occurred to us to go to a local cemetery and decorate the graves of fallen soldiers and sailors. All of my relatives survived their military experience, even my great-great-grandfather James Smith, who marched to the sea with Sherman and was shot through the liver at Bentonville in the waning days of the conflict in March of 1865. He lived for almost another 50 years. In my generation, I was a medic in Vietnam. Two of my cousins also served and survived. So it's only been within the last 30 or 40 years that I have truly realized and appreciated the true meaning and impact of the day. The name Memorial Day, which was first used in 1882, gradually became more common than Decoration Day after World War II. But it was not declared the official name by federal law until 1967 under President Lyndon B. Johnson. On June 28, 1968, Congress passed the Uniform Monday Holiday Act, which moved four holidays, including Memorial Day, from their traditional dates to a specified Monday in order to create a convenient three-day weekend. So what's the Philadelphia connection? On May 5th, 1868, General John A. Logan issued a proclamation calling for Decoration Day to be observed annually and nationwide. He was Commander-in-Chief of the Grand Army of the Republic, the GAR, an organization of and for Civil War veterans founded in Springfield, Illinois in 1866, with the first post opening in Decatur, Illinois that same year. With this proclamation called Order Number 11, Logan adopted the Memorial Day practice that had begun in the southern states three years earlier and made it an official holiday. Mr. and Mrs. Henry Kimball of West Philadelphia were old friends of General Logan. Martha Gertrude Bowen Kimball was born in 1839. According to many reports, she acted as a nurse in Union hospitals and accompanied her husband as he inspected confiscated cotton during the Civil War. 
In 1868, in her late 20s, Martha Kimball wrote a thoughtful letter to her friend, John Logan. The following paragraph is from the Scranton Republican, dated 30 May, 1891. On the Kimball's return home from a southern tour, Mrs. Kimball wrote to General Logan, stating that she had particularly noticed the southern women decorating the graves of their dead fallen in battle, and suggested to him, as the commander-in-chief of the Grand Army of the Republic, he should have our heroic soldiers, whose lonely graves were many, scattered and unmarked, remembered in the same beautiful way. Soon afterward, he wrote Mrs. Kimball thanking her for the suggestion and stating that he felt such a touching tribute to his dead comrades would undoubtedly meet with general favor. Now, there are other contemporary newspaper accounts that confirm this version of the story. Logan, who had died in 1886, was not around to confirm or deny. Martha Kimball died on April 21, 1894, at age 54, of bowel tuberculosis. Interestingly, her death certificate lists her as a widow, but she had, in fact, divorced her husband five years after they moved to Philadelphia. She was a celebrated institution in town when she died. The men of the GAR in Philadelphia, based at the Union League on South Broad Street, buried her at West Laurel Hill Cemetery with military honors, and June 9th was proclaimed Kimball Day in her honor. There is an archive of newspaper articles and other data in the West Laurel Hill Cemetery archives, which was gathered by the General Meade Society when they pled their case to declare Martha Kimball the mother of Memorial Day. John Logan has a statue at the center of Logan Circle in Washington, D.C. There's another in Grant Park in Chicago, Illinois. However, Logan Circle in Philadelphia is not named for the general, rather for Philadelphia statesman James Logan, who died in 1751 and is buried at Friends Arch Street Meeting House Burial Grounds, you know, the one that uh, John J. Smith couldn't find his daughter and thus created Laurel Hill Cemetery. But Martha Gertrude Bowen Kimball, formerly of 4703 King Sessing Avenue and now residing in the Washington section, Plot 130, at West Laurel Hill Cemetery, may very well be the mother of Memorial Day. Every year, we hear screeds about the commercialization of holidays. Brick-and-mortar stores start their Christmas decorations after Halloween. Black Friday, the day after Thanksgiving, kicks off the shopping in earnest. Valentine's Day, St. Patrick's Day, and Easter all seem to bleed into one another with their push of bright colors and sweets. And everyone knows that Mother's Day was an invention of Hallmark greeting cards, right? Well, the idea actually started with a Philadelphia spinster who mourned her sainted mother, perhaps a little too much. Anna Jarvis was born in 1864 in Grafton, West Virginia. Her mother, Mrs. Ann M. Jarvis, personified the image of 19th century woman as saint. She bore 11 children, of whom only four survived to adulthood. She taught Sunday school in the Grafton Methodist Episcopal Church. She was a peacemaker who prevented the split of the local church congregation during the Civil War, especially after West Virginia split from Virginia and became its own state in 1863. For Mrs. Jarvis, Anna was a special child, the first of her daughters to survive infancy. 
as a young woman, Anna taught at the Grafton High School. Until at age 28, she left West Virginia to join her brother Claude in Philadelphia. Claude had made a substantial income as owner of a flourishing urban taxi business. His wealth enabled Anna to socialize with prominent Philadelphians. Although uncomfortable with Anna's cry for independence, Mrs. Jarvis could not prevent Anna's move to Pennsylvania. When Anna's father died in 1902, Mrs. Jarvis followed Anna and Claude to Philadelphia, bringing with her another daughter, Elsinore, who was virtually blind and depended upon the family for support. The elderly woman continued to live with her two spinster daughters for the three years until her death at age 72 in May 1905. Anna was then 41 years old, single, and for the first time free of her mother's scrutiny. But she was initially inconsolable and accused the presiding physician of malpractice. In her home, she erected a small altar with dried funeral flowers in honor of her mother. To friends who sent messages of condolence, Anna responded with glowing tributes to her mother who had been a, quote, noble Christian character, a masterpiece as a mother and a gentle woman whose ambitions had been restrained by the ties of motherhood, homemaking, and years of frail health. Still in mourning two years later, Anna established a Mother's Day committee to inaugurate the May anniversary of her mother's death as a day in honor of all unselfish Christian mothers. She showed shrewd organizational skills. Anna recruited a group of Philadelphians with wealth and social standing. Department store owner John Wanamaker, food processing giant H.J. Hines, and an editor of the Philadelphia Inquirer, which gave the committee access to the media and ensured publicity for its ideas. But Anna Jarvis dominated the group and within three years of her mother's death had made the promotion of Mother's Day her full-time vocation. As founder of Mother's Day, Anna gained the national prominence she felt her mother had never received and had denied to her daughter. Anna eagerly sought the publicity given her as mother of the holiday honoring motherhood. Each year, she issued to the press her personal Mother's Day message. When the day became a popular May festivity, she copyrighted the day and the decorations. In the 1920s, she threatened lawsuits against songwriters who incorporated a Mother's Day theme and against a man named Frank E. Herring, who claimed that the celebration of Mother's Day had been his idea four years before Anna Jarvis initiated her crusade. American business interests were initially slow to capitalize on the sales potential of Mother's Day. Department store advertisements sometimes encouraged Mother's Day celebrants to give small personal gifts, such as a Mother's Day card, a box of candy, or possibly a portrait of Whistler's mother. The Mother's Day section of the advertisement, however, was usually a minor part of an extensive full-page store promotion. In the first 10 years of observances, only one Philadelphia store indicated that Mother's Day should be celebrated by making a major purchase. In this case, a Victrola for Mother's use in her leisure time. It was the Stars and Stripes, the newspaper of the American Expeditionary Force, that first suggested a special Mother's Day mail in 1918. All military men were to take time on Mother's Day to write a letter to Mother. 
The Secretary of War approved the idea, and on the second Sunday in May, the YMCA distributed stationery to all men in uniform. Pack the page with love and good cheer, the Stars and Stripes advised. Fill it to the brim with reassurance, for you know how mothers worry. Thus, by 1918, Mother's Day had become a permanent annual custom, although it was quite different from the holiday originally envisioned by Anna Jarvis. And Anna fought back. She struggled against forces of commercialization that overwhelmed her original message, the confection, floral, and greeting card industries. She attempted to counter those commercial forces, creating a badge with a Mother's Day emblem as a less ephemeral alternative to the white carnation being promoted by florists. Her negative opinion of these commercial forces was evident in her contemporary commentary. A printed card means nothing except that you are too lazy to write to the woman who has done more for you than anyone in the world. And candy, you take a box to mother and then eat most of it yourself. A pretty sentiment. Anna's efforts to hold on to the original meaning of the day led to her own economic hardship. While many others profited from the day, Jarvis did not, and she spent the later years of her life with her sister Lily. In 1943, she began organizing a petition to rescind Mother's Day. However, these efforts were halted when she was placed in the Marshall Square Sanitarium in Westchester, Pennsylvania. Jarvis died on November 24, 1948. People connected with the floral and greeting card industries had paid the bills to keep her in the sanitarium over the last five years of her life. Anna was buried at West Laurel Hill Cemetery in a river section, lot 499. She was buried next to her sister Elsinore, who died in 1944 at age 77, and her brother Claude, who had died at age 66 in 1926. And, of course, her mother. Claude's granddaughter inherited her meager belongings and took over care of the family plot, as Anna herself had never married or had any children. It turns out the idea of Mother's Day was the only thing she was the mother to. Next time in the September edition of All Bones Considered, I'll tell you about some famous architects at the Laurel Hills. John Notman, who designed the cemeteries. Napoleon Lebrun, who designed the Academy of Music on South Broad Street. Horace Trumbauer, who designed much of the art museum, and Frank Furness, who designed the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts and the Gatehouse at the Philadelphia Zoo. Cemetery is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia, just a block from the SEPTA 61 bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny. Admission is free, as is parking in the lot across the street. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Balakinwood, with parking available at the main entrance and at the bell tower. Both Laurel Hills are open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. from May to October and 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. November through April. You can wander on your own or take one of the more than 100 guided tours given by knowledgeable volunteer guides every year, or download the app for both cemeteries and chart your own way across the property. 
Find out more at www.thelaurelhillcemetery.org or www.westlaurelhill.com. Once you've fallen in love with these hot spots, become a friend of Laurel Hill and you have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. I'm Joe Lex, reminding you to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. For more on Stephen Whitman, check out the history section of the Russell Stover Candy page online, www.russellstover.com slash Whitman's history. For Sarah Josepha Hale, there's Mr. Godey's Lady, a 1958 article in American Heritage magazine by Ralph Nading Hill, and The Lady of Godey's, Sarah Josepha Hale, by Mrs. Ruth Finley, 1931, published by J.B. Lippincott. To get more information on Martha Kimball, you will have to dig deep. The archive at West Laurel Hill has quite a bit, thanks to the General Meade Society. But the book, The Genesis of the Memorial Day Holiday in America, by Daniel Belware and Richard Gardner, offers just a little information and generally scoffs at the idea of Kimball having been a major influence. Now, for Anna Jarvis, try Memorializing Motherhood, Anna Jarvis and the Struggle for Control of Mother's Day by Catherine Lane Antolini, and Mother's Day, the Creation, Promotion, and Meaning of a New Holiday in the Progressive Era by Kathleen W. Jones. That's from Texas Studies in Literature and Language, Volume 22, Number 2, Summer of 1980. Pages 175 to 196, published by the University of Texas Press.